Historical backward-looking lending is dead. Long live the Challenger Bank. Or long live forward-looking external data analysis. Innovators like Oak North Bank have disrupted the financial industry. CIO Sean Hunter joins me today to discuss the new age of collaborative ecosystem banking. He shares personal insight into his own career and how an unconventional and open-minded approach led him from jazz student to Goldman Sachs to the rapidly scaling unicorn Oak North. And what it's like to work in a radically changing business, which feels a little like you're flying the plane as you build it. Welcome, Sean, to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get into um, the the hugely interesting world of fintech and how money is is moving around the world these days, I wanted to talk about you because when we looked at your CV, um, we were really blown away by the huge leapfrogs that have happened over the course of your career. I mean, we often talk to entrepreneurs about their kind of jungle gym uh, kind of uh, career journeys, but yours are, are really phenomenal. From a jazz student student to vice president at Goldman Sachs within five years, like how did you how did you manage that? Yeah, I mean it's not a very conventional journey, that's for sure. So um I've always been uh a software developer since I was very young. My father is an engineer and he used to get me and my elder brother to develop chemical process models for him um, on our home computer. So I've always sort of programmed in computers and so on. And then while I was doing my jazz postgrad, I was using programming jobs to pay for my postgrad. Um, and then I actually had tendon problems, which sort of ended my playing career. Um, but the, the developing career sort of took off from there. Um, and then the, the Goldman thing was quite coincidental because basically, um, I was working for a dot com. And it turned out that Goldman was using one of the technologies we used to use at the dot com. And, and, uh, they sort of hunted me down because, because I was particularly good at a certain thing. Um, and, and that's how I ended up in, I had no intention of going into finance, but that. Yeah. Um, but definitely serendipity, um, plays a part, doesn't it? Um, mm-hmm. I think. What I guess from what you've just said there, what's really interesting is that none of that is apparent on your CV um, when you look at LinkedIn. But there will probably be many people who have those kind of, I'm not going to say hobby, because there's obviously more to it than that. You know, it was obviously a passion that ran through your family. Um, but they will be considering career jumps right now because many industries are themselves now disrupted due to COVID. Um, if you were back again, thinking about what you were going to do next, what advice would you have for people that would be considering career jumps into technology at the moment? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say, obviously, go for it. I think it's a very fruitful field. There's a ton of interesting careers. I would also say, you know, back your own ability to learn um, and and be humble and, and, you know, be prepared to go in sort of at the ground floor. But but if you're keen to learn, there's lots of opportunities. You don't necessarily have to have, as I've shown, a kind of conventional a career background. You know, lots of people that I know in tech have somewhat wacky career backgrounds. But one of the things about engineering and technology in general is it's more skill-based. And so if you can demonstrate that you're good at something, 
people will will give you a chance, even if you're not necessarily, uh, you know, the most conventional candidate. Yeah, I think you've touched on something there. I think that's very prevalent in the tech industry. It's probably the main thing to consider is that it's that kind of industry where it's a light, it is truly that lifelong learning. You have to constantly learn because yeah. technology moves at such a such a pace. Yeah, so true. Um, now, your Goldman Sachs career, you spent nine years there, um, but then it looks like you went back to your roots. So you, you left um, the finance industry behind and took on a role as a, a chief information officer. Um, what prompted the rethink? Because that, you know, a lot of people would probably think you're crazy for leaving Goldman yeah. Sachs. Yeah, well, what it prompted was a, the rethink? It was a pretty strange uh, career move in lots of ways. <laughs> I felt like I felt like I'd sort of hit a certain plateau at Goldman and I wasn't learning, to, to your point, very much anymore. I was sort of replaying my greatest hits, um, so to speak. So, and then an, an agent called me up about a job at a software company uh, called Palantir. And, and I had absolutely no interest at, at the time whatsoever in this job. But for whatever reason, he sort of twisted my, twisted my arm. And said, no, well, at least do an interview. And then when I did an interview, the people that I spoke to were really smart. They were really interesting. And as the interview process went on, I kind of gradually became more and more interested in working with them just because I felt there was a lot I could potentially learn and so on. And it seemed very interesting. And so that led eventually to my role as CIO of this joint venture that they set up um, between themselves and Credit Suisse. Um, that joint venture was called Signac. And, uh, and yeah, that was kind of a, it was a strange lateral move at the time, but it actually ended up working out great for me. Well, I mean, speaking to you now in your current role, I can see how that has, has led you where you are today. Um, but it, you mentioned there about learning, um, which is something that you have a, a real appetite for, but also innovation is, mm-hmm. you know, you, you like developing uh, new things. Um, and we can see that through your advisor role for Antler. Um, tell us a bit about Antler and what you learn from the startups that you work with there. Yeah, so Antler is an interesting uh, company. So basically, Antler is a combination between a sort of tech incubator and a venture capital fund. And what they do is they take people who want to be entrepreneurs, they join them together into founding teams and then help them come up with their initial idea. And then at the end, they back uh, some of the good ideas um, to go on to become, you know, real companies. And so it's a really interesting sort of opportunity to be involved right at the start of somebody's journey. Um, the thing that I really learned from startups is this, you know, what you mentioned innovation, like is, is how innovation kind of works. And successful startups really focus on the problem, really going deep on, you know, what is the problem they're trying to solve? Why is that problem valuable? Who cares? Um, and, and what can you bring that's really unique to that particular problem? And I think focusing on that really helps people to come up with interesting solutions because there's so many things in the world that potentially could be improved and, and, you know, could be the basis for innovation. But I think people are very, you know, typically stuck because they're kind of comfortable with the way things always have been. Um, so the thing that I learned is, you know, never, never be content, you know, always look for a better solution. Um, 
you know, in chess, there's a sort of saying in the game of chess where if you see a good move, you know, go look for a better move. And I think that's true in life. You know, if you see a solution that you think is good, see how you can improve it and come up with something that's even better than that. And it's not just in London that you do this advisory work, is it? Um, no. So we, uh, how do you advise a social impact startup in Pakistan called Kamaya, I believe? How is it possible yeah. for you to met, like, advise a company on the other side of the world? Um, so I think it is, it's interesting, it's challenging. Um, I, I think, obviously, you know, digital technology, video conferencing and so on, has has really come on tremendously recently and that helped. Um and so the the nature of the way I help Kamayi is kind of very sporadic. They only need help from me every now and then when they they ask questions or they want an introduction or they want advice about a certain thing. And so typically it's something that I can do remotely. Um but I think it would really depend on the type of company and so on. The, the situation with Kamai is, is that it was basically one of the founders is someone that I worked with, um, previously at Sinyat. And so, so that's kind of the, the connection there. Um, and as a result, it is pretty easy to, to work with them. Yes. I mean, it feels like COVID has kind of broken down those barriers now that, you know, Ned's would have you know, and advisors would have typically looked and considered roles geographically. And it feels like COVID, which has brought on this impetus for better video technology, has nearly broken those barriers down. And, you know, we can all look to be kind of global, global yeah. advisors. I think that is, I think that's undoubtedly true. And I think it's kind of interesting in the sense that, you know, that breaks down all kinds of barriers. You know, if you're looking to get a more diverse set of voices at your sort of boardroom table or whatever, you no longer have to just consider the place where you're based. You can you can think about choosing the best people from around the world. So it really widens the time. And I think more now more than ever that the the reasons why you would want those different voices and um, constructive conflict is uh, is yes. is now yeah. Um, so let's look at your role now at Oak North. Um, what inspired you to join the team? Because again, it's another bold move. How did you sort of come to meet the co-founders, Rishi, uh, Joshla and uh, Joe Perlman? Yeah, it's oh, again, sort of very, very strange serendipity. So at Sinyak, I had a, a very short meeting with a, with a very prominent hedge fund um, where they were interested in our technology and and I had a brief meeting that was set up by one of our investors, and they asked me to do the meeting. And I got on the meeting, and it was you know the chief operating officer, the chief investment officer, some of the top people from the trading business of this very successful hedge fund. And I said to them, "Look, you know, I don't think our technology is a very good choice for you for a variety of reasons." And I explained it. So it was a very sort of High integrity, but I basically said no yeah. to them. You won't be allowed to and, go to any more presentations. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it was it was one of those where I thought nothing of it. And then two years later, I get a message from the person who is head of people ops, so essentially HR at, at Oak North, um, to say, hey, you know, would you be interested in this job? And the reason she thought of me is that, you know, 
her partner works at this hedge fund. He was on this call and he thought, wow, this guy seems really impressive and very smart. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that's where the connection came from. It was a very, very random connection. Um, mm. and, and then when I met Rishi and Joel, I just thought they were firstly very impressive people. They're both extremely smart, very, very passionate about helping entrepreneurs, growing small businesses and so on, which is something that I care about. And, and I just thought, again, these are definitely people I can learn a ton from. Yeah, which was really the problem they were trying to solve, wasn't it, from their previous uh, company that they struggled with raising uh, yeah. finance? That's right. So in the, yeah. yeah, exactly. So in their previous company, they struggled to get finance, even though they had a profitable business. And they thought, gee, this is crazy. The, the banking market is just not serving this uh, set of businesses very well. Amazing. And they have had um, a pretty stratospheric growth from their inception. So clearly a demand um, for the uh, solution to the problem that they were trying to solve. Um, so from their inception in 2013, they then secured a banking license by 2015, which we know from our podcast that we did with Dame Gina and Gadia um, from her time at Virgin Money, that isn't an easy thing to do. Um, so what, what is it like to work in such a rapidly scaling business? Yeah, yeah well, it's, I mean, I love it, but it's very, very, um, it's very tough. You sort of age a year every day. <laughs> it's, there's so many challenges and, yeah. and so, so many things. I, I often have this conversation. In fact, I had this conversation literally just before I got on the podcast with you with someone who was saying she couldn't believe that it's only been a year since she joined, um, because it just feels like so much longer because, you know, there's, there's, you know, it's so intense. And I think one of the things that I often speak to people about is, you know, this thing when you're working for a really rapid scaling company, there is, you know, elements of chaos. There is kind of a lot of challenge that goes with it. But that's part of what makes it exciting, and that's what you sign up for when you go for a startup or a scale-up, right? You, you you want the growth, but that means some of the time it seems like people don't know what they're doing or, or you know, because actually what you're trying to do a lot of the time in a scale-up business is you're trying to... Um, you're trying to build the plane while you're flying, essentially. You know, because <laughs> that's a breath, yes. Right. Because you you're you're you know, it, basically the, the problem you're trying to solve is is a hard problem. That's why it's interesting. Yeah. And then you're not only trying to solve the problem for your customers, whoever they are, but you're also trying to build the machine, you know, that that serves those customers at the same time. And that means that, you know, if you if you start off with ten people and then at the end of the year you've got hundred and twenty people, all the processes, just basic stuff like your HR mm -hmm. process and all that stuff, you know, needs to radically change. And I think a lot of people they want the the startup experience, but then when they actually get in it, they they're not quite mentally prepared for, you know, that much sort of disruption of of just sort of basic things. Because you're, you know, always looking for more office space and, you know, everyone, you know, desks are moving around all the time because, you sh you know, you're restacking things to make space for people and there's never enough yeah. meeting rooms and all this basic things that in a yeah. sort of stable company are just not an issue. Yeah, but it's a no, lot of fun. I, 
Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I completely agree. And I think you can get hooked on where, you know, especially if you've come from bigger corporates and you'll probably know this from your time at Goldman, um, is that, you know, you would work very hard on on projects, but it would be very slow to see any kind of yes. impact but when when you're in a startup or a scaling business like that, you can get hooked because you you can make the change and almost immediately see the impact, and then you yeah. you want to do it again, and so you you emotionally invest yourself more and more. Hence, why you age a year every month. <laughs> yeah, no, it's huge. It's it's absolutely huge. And I'll give you an example yeah. of that. Like I was in meetings with investors and clients literally one week before I started. So a week before I started. Rishi called me up and said, Hey, you know, what are you doing this week? And I was like, nothing. So he said, come to New York with me. We've got to meet some clients. We've got to meet some investors. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, just straight in, but you, your, your ability to have personal impact is very, very significant at a, at a startup company. Yeah. Pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, let's talk about this um, sort of foundational belief that Oak North has. Um, it believes that SMEs have the power to rebuild the economy. And we can see your belief in that from your advisory roles. But why? Why do you and Oak North believe that so, so strongly? Tell us. Yeah. So, I mean, we think that growth businesses or the missing middle, is, as we like to call them, are absolutely the backbone of economies, backbone of liberties. They're the businesses which have the largest multiplier effect in an economy because most of the employment comes from uh, small and medium-sized enterprises. Um, most of the economic growth comes from those. As you've said, like, you know, stable companies by definition, you know, the larger companies, you know, if you're a global titan, like, oh, you mentioned Goldman that I used to work for, you know, Goldman, it's not like Goldman's going to double in size or quadruple in size in a year. It's just not possible for such yeah. a huge enterprise, right? Whereas it's quite feasible for a sort of 10-person business, you know, that, that's doing really well to, you know, quadruple in size in a year. And so what tends to happen is they're a real driver of growth. They're a real driver of employment, especially, you know, when you're talking about, um, you know, jobs in non-traditional areas, jobs in sort of outside of the of London, for example, you know, in the regions of the UK, a lot of mm -hmm. the growth and recovery and regeneration in those regions is coming from small businesses. Um, so we think it's really, really important to support them. Um, and we think that, you know, when the coronavirus, um, you know, pandemic is over, a lot of the recovery is going to come from these small businesses because they're going to need to, you know, hire people and so on. And that's going to start to get the, the shoots of economy recoveries going. Yeah. I mean, you touched on the regions there and the, 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 the potential of the regions and how to harness it. I know Oak North have committed themselves outside of London to places like Birmingham, Bristol, Manchester, and I believe about to open a new office in New Yorkshire somewhere. Can we say yeah. where? Yeah, I think it's in Leeds. Okay. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and it's that opportunity that you've uh, identified, you know, helping businesses to, you know, to secure debt finance. I mean, you guys have uh, approved more, more than 60 million in new loans since lockdown started. Can you tell us more about that um, and perhaps maybe about the COVID vulnerability rating? Um, what is that? If you're enjoying the podcast, simply hit the like and subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. If you have the time, leave us a review. 
You can do that really easily by going to ratemypodcast.com forward slash fast forward. Sure. So, um, you know, as I said, we focus on commercial lending to these businesses in the missing middle. So they're businesses that are in scale-up mode rather than startups. We've been averaging 150 million in new loan approvals each month since March. And we're seeing twice the lending volume going to our credit commodity committee versus last year, the same time. Um, so, so, and even more is actually accelerating now. Um, so at the moment, I think our run rate is about four times our, our sort of year on year, what we were doing last year. Um, mm-hmm. and so, so, you know, we think that there's lots and lots of opportunities in the UK. There's lots of great businesses, um, that need debt finance even more than ever. Um, in order to to weather this current crisis and then also realize their growth plans and so on. Um, we've been participating in some of these government schemes such as CBELs, CL bills, and mm-hmm. um, we've had, you know, we lent out all of our initial allocation from the British Business Bank and we've received additional allocation twice since being onboarded. So we're, you know, we're actively participating in these schemes. The, the COVID vulnerability rating is something we developed to try to understand the impact of the crisis on our borrowers and how best to help them. And basically what we've got is we've got 133 proprietary subsector-specific COVID stress scenarios with a sort of regional overlay. So the way you think about this is, you know, how the crisis is affecting, you know, a, a business-making event gowns and wedding dresses is going to be very different to how the business, how the crisis is affecting a company making yoga clothes, even though those are both in kind of speciality clothing retail. Well, you know, one of them is very dependent on external events, which are probably shut down. The other one's probably seeing a boom at the moment because of, you know, people exercising to, you know, stay fit during, during the lockdown. And so what we try to do is we, we built up all these different credit scenarios to try and understand the impact of the current crisis, um, how much, you know, how long it's going to take for a particular sector to come back, and then finally what big changes have happened um, during the lockdown that are going to affect the profitability in the future. And then what we try and do is using external data and all kinds of stuff like that, we build forward-looking analysis for each of these sectors and look at the impact on each borrower so that we can decide how best to help the borrower. You know, does the borrower... Can they afford more debt? Will more debt actually help them to survive? Will something like a government program like a CBEL or CBCL bills help them more? And so on. And so having built this rating framework and used it for our own borrowers, we then um, have kept it updated. So as the crisis has evolved, we've kept changing it appropriately. And then we've also rolled it out for our customers, including in particular in the U.S., um, because some of the very big banks in the U.S. who are using us um, they really struggle to understand the nature of the impact on their borrowers and, and what to do about it. And so we're able to help them using that framework. So that's a really interesting thing that I didn't know. Um, you mentioned there that how Oak North are helping other banks um, in the States. I'm not sure anywhere else, but um, I was going to ask, you know, what is it that you guys do that's so different from traditional lenders? But is that how you're actually helping Traditional lenders, obviously technology is, you know, you have a technology first kind of approach to everything. You talked about data there. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about how sort of agile that, it, you know, your your algorithms are around what's happening as the crisis unfolds. Um, 
So I presume that's all incredibly different from what other lenders do, but rather than you're actually trying to help them as well? Yeah, so we're, we're, we license our platform to banks outside the UK. So in the UK, we're exclusive with Open Wealth Bank. Outside the UK, we're a technology partner to banks. And basically, we're a, you know, we're a software company that provides, um, software that does credit analysis, that does monitoring of existing loans, and then also does this portfolio diagnostic, this coronavirus, um, impact rating. So, the, the, what we're trying to do is basically make it so that banks, uh, elsewhere in the world, and we work with banks in North America, across Europe, and in uh, Asia and Australasia. Um, and we're, what we're trying to do is help them to do lending to the same segment of small and medium sized enterprises, growth businesses, and so on, which it turns out it's a global problem. Um, you know, borrowers in the segment around the world are, are all impacted um, by this crisis. Yeah. And, and do you think that the banks are dealing with the strain? You know, obviously you guys have uh, transacted 60 million and, you know, I, can't, I have no idea, like outside of that, how much other banks in the UK or globally have transacted for loan applications. Um, I mean, is the, is the industry coping with that strain? Are they having to adapt to be able to do it? Or, you know, where are the gaps? Yeah, so we can't speak for other banks in the UK, but I know that we saw a huge demand for the government-backed loans uh, towards the start of pandemic, which really put a strain on the on the programs. Um, you know, the government's response has been really phenomenal. They've, they've really responded very fast. You know, this is an unprecedented crisis, and yet they... They came up with bounce back loans, coronavirus business interruption loan scheme, and the CL bills, which is the large scheme. And they've seen tens of billions of pounds lent, and they did that reaction very, very rapidly. Uh, so, you know, but the government's not really set up to respond that fast. You know, we want our government to be somewhat, um, you know, thoughtful and, and take their time to about how taxpayers' money gets spent, right? Like, that's important. So, so it's actually been amazing how quickly the government has done it. In terms of Bookmark Bank, you know, we've had, a, as you say, a very, um, you know, productive uh, time. In particular, August has been amazing in terms of completing loans. Um, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen four times the lending volume going to our credit that we saw last year. Elsewhere in the world, you know, in the U.S., the the PPP loan scheme saw this tremendous strain. Um, on banks when they were trying to process these loans because uh, the scheme itself was not really, um, they were trying to use an existing small business administration loan scheme, but they wanted banks more broadly to do it. So a lot of them weren't signed up with the SBA, the administration, and then the terms of the scheme weren't very clear to start with. And then banks were seeing, you know, more than they were seeing in a week more loans than they would normally process in an entire year. It was wow. absolutely insane the level of demand. Mm. Um, and so it did put very, very significant operational demand on banks. And we saw, we saw cases where you'd have like the chief risk officer of a bank, you know, working 24 hour shifts with their colleagues, you know, processing applications mm-hmm. all day, all night, just to try and get the, get the backlog dealt with. So it was a very, very big strain. So do you think um do you think as a result of all of this, like COVID, the 
the the loan the initiatives that the government has been has been uh, spinning up which you know the way you describe it I know um you know governments don't generally move very quickly but it's almost like they've been acting in a startup mentality of like a mm-hmm. test and learn yeah. let's try this did it work let's try this did it work um you know which is really interesting yeah. observation um but do you think that the financial sector will be fundamentally changed as a result because of everything yeah. that's been happening I mean I hope so I hope so. So I, th- I think it'll it'll impact the the barriers that digital transformations had to face. So for example, you know, banks historically have had a kind of cultural resistance internally to changing existing processes. Um, you know, people have said, well, you know, this is the way things have always been done, and so on. And legacy IT or regulations stop us from changing things, etc. So I think the crisis has shown banks that they can actually be more nimble, more agile than they maybe thought. Um, and they've been forced to change. As a result of that, this sort of digital transformation has moved up the agenda. And there's a real moment where fintechs can help. You know, we've seen banks accelerating decisions. They've been partnering at a speed that we never saw previously. Because one of the things is, you know, a lot of banks previously would have said, well, we've got a change agenda. It's going to work over the next four years. Um and, and we can build everything <laughs> ourselves, right? Or maybe yeah, can you do supplies. it in four weeks? <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Weeks. And so then all of a sudden it just changes people's mindset completely and, mm. and they're much more apt to partner and then bring fintechs into the ecosystem. And fintechs now need to step up and show that they can be valuable and help out and so on. So that's going to be an interesting time. And I think it is a permanent change. So I was going to ask you who you thought Oak North's biggest competitor was but actually from the way that you're talking uh sean it sounds like that's even that mindset is going to be gone from the banking industry that it will be more about collaborations are you know do you have competitors or is it now that new sort of mindset that's people are looking to you know better all better together kind of thing well i mean i very much think that you know the collaborative mindset is going to dominate um because i think that you know, if you think about any kind of bank, they've got a diverse internal IT infrastructure that's grown up over a long period of time. They already have all kinds of different technology and so on. So the old mindset where someone would come in and say, hey, we'll sell you this one system and we'll replace everything. It's going to take three years. It's going to be a massive <laughs> risk to put in. Like, you that's just the place for when that. You when you yeah. yeah, right. It's just crazy. It? So, yeah. But I think before, like a year ago, that's what you, you, if they didn't say that, you would have been, oh, this is too much, you know, this isn't going to be good enough. Yeah. If they, if it, if somebody came in and said, I'm going to do this transformation, we're going to do it in, you know, for four months, they would have yeah. been, oh, it's, you know, they're shysters. Whereas now that's it's right. like, no, we need, <laughs> we need that. We need yeah. And so, and so as a result, like, I think now the, the opportunity is there rather than trying to do everything. If you can demonstrate to a bank, hey, we can do this one thing really, really well, um, then, then you know, the bank is, because banks are already very good at sort of putting together solutions from lots of different pieces because they've been forced to become good at that. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, in actual practice, I think that's a, I think that's a big change. As far as competitors are concerned, I mean, we don't have any direct competitors as such. Usually, our closest competitor is usually the the sort of option of just going with the status quo, um, mm-hmm. and and the crisis is shown, you know, because 
the status quo for lending for small businesses that involve historical backward-looking um, analysis, which now is completely irrelevant and out of date and unable to deal with this huge credit crisis, I think you know that argument has somewhat been won. So I think we're in a good place as far as the platform is concerned. Um, now, Oak North, obviously, you're a disruptor in the banking industry, but as we know from everything we've just said, that cycle of innovation has sped up. Um, and so do you foresee Oak North moving into that more mature sector and challengers coming behind you guys? Or will you take that, you know, will you mature into the kind of um, sort of the the the, the you know, the bigger institution and then start those collaborations with others? Or or are you already doing it? Are you already collaborating? Um, yeah, so as a bank, we're already taking an ecosystem approach. We have a number of different providers who provide us with technology and so on. And and I think that will carry on. I mean, I think as a, you know, when you're talking about that cycle of evolution and maturity and things, I hope institutions will come along and challenge us because that will help us to continue to improve. And um, I think that Darwinian process is is good for consumers and good for, in our case, you know, small businesses who are trying to get finance. If banks are continuously having to become better to serve them better, that's that's good for everyone. So I, you know, I hope that's the case. Um, from our standpoint, you know, we're always looking for providers who can work with us, who can help us, who can provide things that we can't do very well. That's that's always good. Um, so you mentioned there about the um, historically looking backward approach to lending. Um, so if that is dead, um, what is the what is the future? How how what will lending look like going forward for for businesses? Right yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you know regulators and so on have already been putting pressure on banks to use more forward looking analysis. And so on. So I think that's that's a trend that's going to continue. Um, banks are going to need to use more external data. Um, so so they're going to they you know the historical way of taking a borrower's forecast, maybe applying a twenty percent haircut, and then saying, okay, that's my <laughs> forecast. You know that's that's just yeah. not going to work anymore. So you're going to need to use external data. You're going to need to use a much more rigorous approach to understanding particular businesses and what's special about them and how they work and so on. And then I think also people are going to need to use more non-traditional, non-conventional sources of data because one of the things the crisis has shown us is that, so, you know, although the, the financials are obviously the most important sort of traditional source of data, a lot of data that's online and so on updates much more frequently mm-hmm. and can have tremendous uh, predictive power. So if you take a, a hospitality business like a restaurant or something like that, you know, there are mm-hmm. sources of data that can tell you uh, state of restaurant reservations. So they can tell you, you know, are people back reserving seats at these restaurants again? They can tell yeah. you things like, you know, reviews can tell you whether people like a restaurant. So, you know, if you if you look at a restaurant chain as they roll out to successive uh, new sites and so on, are people still enjoying the experience? Are they still rating it positively and so on? Those non-traditional data sources, I think, are going to increase in importance. That's a really, um, a really interesting way to um, look at it. Um, so we like to end the podcast with some advice. And um, 
you have had such a uh, a, a dynamic um sort of really diverse um career uh sean if but if you reflected over it um what would be some of the biggest learnings from your career and perhaps maybe even what advice do you wish that you should have had that somebody ha- could have given you that you never got yeah so the one thing is i would say is don't get caught up in people's expectations don't worry about things like you know uh, promotions that you don't get or titles that other people get that you feel like you deserve or anything like that. Just focus on learning and getting better and improving and increasing your personal impact. Because if you're focused on increasing your personal impact, all the good things in my career have kind of flowed from that. So learning more to improve my skills, to increase my personal impact, then, you know, good things happen. And things like promotions, they're kind of a side effect of you of you increasing your impact personally. And, you know, if you look for opportunities to learn, you look for individuals to learn from, those are the those are the best ways to advance your career in the long term. Yeah, it's almost like if you look after the pennies, the pounds look after themselves. Exactly right. <laughs> Sean, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us this afternoon and giving us a, a little peek behind the wizard's curtain of what goes on at a fintech company. And also for your insight and advice on um, how people might be able to use this um, current crisis to help uh, transform their own careers and lives. Um, If you have, um, for the listeners, I hope that has given you some kind of understanding of what's going on in the banking world and a sense of um, assurance that um, there is um, a strong future for SMEs in the UK. And if you're the leader of one of those, I hope this podcast has given you a better night's sleep. Thank you. Thank you. Fast Forward is a weekly interview podcast brought to you by Tech Manchester, an incubator for digital and creative startups in the Northwest. I'm your host, Patricia Keating. The podcast is produced by Sarah Bellier, audio editing by Jamie Gownlock, and music by Parma Violets. If you have any questions, feel free to drop us a line at info at techmanchester.co.uk or follow us on any of our social channels, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn, all under Tech Manchester. Tech Manchester.